We've seen that in any area of public endeavor, changing the status quo is almost impossible. The combination of entrenched special interest coupled with the basic human resistance to change in an era where change is a constant creates a level of cognitive dissonance and fear that makes changing public policy nearly impossible. So what do we do when the only alternative to change is catastrophic for our planet, for our health, for our economy, and for the peoples of the world? Such is the case with climate change. While the science may be clear, the road ahead is anything but. In this, we face an unprecedented situation. That's why people like my guest, Wen Stevenson, are so passionate about the cause. Wen Stevenson is an independent journalist and climate activist. He's a contributing writer for The Nation, formerly an editor at The Atlantic and The Boston Globe. And it is my pleasure to welcome Wen Stevenson here to talk about his new book, What We're Fighting For Now Is Each Other, Dispatches from the Front Lines of Climate Change. Wen, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Jeff. It's uh, very good to be here. It's great to have you here. Talk a little bit about your own personal experience first and your own passion over this subject and really when it took a turn to really make it the central focus of much of your work. Sure. Um, well, it was really uh, in about in the late 2009 and uh, early 2010, that was really the moment. And Actually, it was a moment, of, uh, a turning point for a lot of people. In fact, I think most people would agree it was kind of a turning point for the whole climate movement um, that period. So I was actually uh, running an NPR show at that point um, called uh, On Point with Tom Ashbrook. Uh, and, uh, and, I, and I watched um, the Copenhagen uh, conference, UN uh, climate conference in, in Copenhagen, uh, at the end, you know, late 2009, very closely. I'd always been interested in climate and, and followed it, not closely enough, <laughs> but uh, you know, I was reasonably well informed. And I saw what happened in Copenhagen, just the collapse of those talks, and I saw the reactions to it from a lot of climate experts um, and advocates that I that I uh, respected a lot, including Bill McKibben, um, you know, who uh, the fa- founder of 350.org, who um, is you know uh, one of the major voices in my book, um, and I and I saw this, and it really made a big impression on me. Um, the fact that you know at this supposedly um, kind of critical do or die moment for uh, for the planet, uh, that uh, you know that kind of a fiasco. <laughs> could occur that we had at uh, uh, like like we saw it uh, in Copenhagen um, and then um, around that same time I was I was deciding to leave that that job I was actually pretty pretty burned out and and just needed to take some time off and I wanted to get back to writing which I hadn't done for a long time and uh, as I was figuring out you know what to what to focus on that next spring that spring of 2010 that was really when things hit the fan kind of um, climate-wise. And, uh, you know, it was clear not only uh, that the world, you know, the international community, you know, was, was failing, um, as we saw at Copenhagen, but we couldn't even get weak bipartisan climate legislation passed in the U.S. You know, the Waxman-Markey cap-and-trade bill uh, died. It was clear it was going to die in the Senate, um, as it did that June. And, um, and so it was a combination for me of really coming to terms with both the scientific reality on, on the one hand, and um, just the sheer scale and urgency um, of, of the crisis, as the science has made very, very clear, 
uh, and the political reality. On the other hand, you know, the fact that our political system, as it currently exists, has really proven itself incapable of, um, of addressing this situation adequately. And so I decided I couldn't imagine getting up in the morning and writing about anything else. Um, and I re- also decided that, you know, writing isn't quite enough that um, I, I wanted to engage as an activist, uh, even though that meant, you know, basically walking away from my, uh, my mainstream media career. Um, uh, and, and that's, you know, that's what I've done. One of the things you've done in, in your writing and in your speaking out about this, and certainly in, in this book, when what we're fighting for now is each other, is you've changed the context in some way. We tend to think of climate change, I think it's fair to say, as an environmental issue. But you take it one step further. You expand the context to talk about it in human rights terms and in social justice terms. Tell us about right, that. Right, right. Sure, sure. I mean, of course it is an environmental issue. It's the biggest environmental issue. Um, and um, But it's not only an environmental issue. And I'm certainly not the first and only person to be, uh, you know, reframing climate in these terms. Uh, um, but yeah, it was, again, this was the thing that really, um, really did it for me, uh, that kind of pushed me over the line, um, was that, you know, I, I didn't, I don't really come at this as an environmentalist. You know, I spent <laughs> a couple decades as a mainstream uh, 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 journalist, you know, editor and producer in mainstream media, not part of the, cl- of the environmental movement. Um, uh, for me, it was always about the human impact of, you know, the impact of climate change on human beings, including my own children. <laughs> I, I, have, I have two kids um, who, in, uh, who are now 15 and 11 and then were about, uh, about 10 and 6. And um, the realization that this is happening now and that today's young people are going to be vastly uh, you know, disproportionately impacted by, um, by the effects of climate change within this century. Uh, but not only that, okay, um, the, the human rights and social justice piece of this, which, you know, people have been making this argument now for decades, is that, you know, the core of it is that, that those globally, you know, the poorest and most, most vulnerable people on the planet have done little or nothing to actually create this crisis, Right. And, and yet they are precisely the ones, uh, because, uh, largely because of where they tend to live um, uh, in, the, in the, the middle latitudes and the global south, uh, who are already the most, most affected by, by climate change and who will be vastly disproportionately affected by it. Um, and so therefore, and this has always been kind of the, the, the idea you know, um, of, of climate justice at the international level, you know, therefore, uh, these developing nations, the, the poor nations of the world, um, really <laughs> need help making this transition. That it's it, that it's the, the burden really falls upon the wealthy industrialized nations who created the crisis um, to uh, to step up and and make far deeper and faster you know uh, reductions in emissions um, and then help the developing nations make the transition, which they really aren't able to make on their own. Um, and then there's an added piece of this, which um, I think really needs to be uh, foregrounded more. And I really try to, in this book, 
um, is that there's a, there's a racial justice piece of this as well, okay? A big one. <laughs> um, you know, the vast majority of those people globally that I'm talking about are, are people of color who, you know, are, you know, historically and even now presently still oppressed under the legacy of slavery and colonialism, you know, um, a, a global economic system that was really built upon, you know, let's face it, white supremacism. And it's that same economic system that is driving climate change today. Um, so, um, so yeah, that's, that's the core piece of it. There's, there's this idea that, that, uh, that you know, the, the climate crisis is in many ways the, the great human rights and social justice issue of our time. And we need a politics. We need a, the kind of political movement um, that, can, that can address it on that level. Is there a danger, though, that in mm-hmm. creating this frame for it, and in creating it as a social justice issue, a racial issue, a moral issue, essentially, as you talk mm-hmm. about, that it makes it more difficult to get the wealthy industrialized nations that are the most responsible to get them to address it on that context? Is it more difficult than mm-hmm. approaching it as a simple, practical, problem-solving environmental issue? Right, right, right. Okay, so that's an excellent question. Um, here's the thing, though. Um, you know, uh, if, if it were, you know, if it were 2005 instead of 2015 um, or 1995, um, I, I would be a little bit more open to that. But the fact of the matter is that those, you know, wealthy industrialized nations, us, um, you know, have now had a couple of decades more than that, really, a quarter of a century to, to address this in precisely those terms that you just described and have, and are, are failing, you know, are, have, have basically failed. And at this late date, you know, uh, it, it, it seems clear that, that nothing is really going to force the issue uh, and bring about the kind of rapid change that we need politically, right, other than a truly uh, broad-based uh, political movement, you know, bottom-up political movement. And how do you create that kind of movement if you don't, uh, you know, if you don't um, uh, couch it in terms and, uh, you know, uh, that, that, that so that you can build the kind of coalitions and the kind of broad-based movement that, that you actually need, including the people, the very people who are most affected by this problem, Right. So, so that's the argument that we've been making in the climate justice movement, certainly in this country. And we've begun to see that start to take shape. I mean, um, if you look last year, last September, uh, at the People's, the massive People's Climate March uh, in New York, where three or 400,000 people came out on the streets, I mean, um, that was really a demonstration of the kind of broad-based movement that we are building. Um, so... Is it harder to create a political movement today, a broad-based, grassroots political movement of the kind you're talking about? Is it tougher to do that than to, to really address these problems in economic terms? I mean, okay, so left to their own devices, I think it's, it's pretty clear that, um, you know, uh, the corporate world, uh, the sort of mainstream uh, economic uh, forces uh, would you know, and are actually, we can, we can point to examples of this, you know, uh, coming around 
uh, to address it. And, you know, they're beginning to show some more, more seriousness because mm-hmm. they understand what is at stake economically, right? right. Um, so we see things like um, uh, the well-publicized, you know, risky business report, you know, put out by um, um, uh, uh, Bloomberg, Paulson, and Steyer, right? Um, trying to kind of light a fire more under uh, the business community to um, start advocating for, for serious climate policies, right? Um, uh, but, but again, again, the, uh, the, it seems to be the case um, that the, the kind of uh, truly, <laughs> uh, well, as I say in the book, radical uh, changes that we need um, if we're serious about addressing this, you know, um, because nothing currently on the table actually comes close to what the science um, says would be necessary in terms of the depth and speed of, of emissions cuts. Um, uh, so so it, seems, it seems clear that just left to their own devices, um, uh, you know, it isn't, you know, the economic argument alone isn't going to be enough, although it certainly should be. Because, uh, as, as you know, it's well well known, uh, the costs of failure here far exceed mm-hmm. <laughs> the costs of um, of taking uh, adequate action. So, and that's really the the key point. Given what's really needed in terms of, as you say, the depth and speed of of what's required, can a grassroots political movement mobilize and accomplish things quickly enough in, in, in today's world, in this country particularly? Right. Well, I mean, there's no way to know the answer to that, but what's the alternative, you know? Um, I mean, look, uh, 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 you know, we're, we, all, we, all we can do is get up every morning and try to, and try to build a movement that can, uh, that can uh, you, know, you know, change, fundamentally change um, the political situation, um, and of, and of course there are there will be other forces at work that will help help move it that way. I mean I mean look clearly um, clearly uh, you know the the financial community uh, is starting to understand this. I mean when you have um, you know any, but, but although uh, in no small part uh, also because of pressure brought by um, the climate movement so uh, I was about to say you know the 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 now sort of mainstreaming of this idea of stranded assets the fact that um, the fossil fuel industry has far more like something like five times more uh, carbon in the ground you know on their books than the science says can ever be burned, you know, if we want to have any ch- any reasonable chance of stabilizing the climate. Um, that idea that there's all this <clears throat> unburnable carbon um, in in the ground and on the books is now become mainstream to the point that you now have the head of the you know the Bank of England you know making speeches um, about the fact that there's a um, a carbon bubble and uh, and that we have to get a grip on this. Um, but that wouldn't necessarily be happening right now if it weren't for the fossil fuel divestment movement, um, which has spread like wildfire all over all over the world now, and um, hundreds of institutions, you know, um, divesting with now, oh, I believe, a couple trillion dollars worth of assets uh, <laughs> represented, um, deciding to uh, to divest from fossil fuels. Um, so that's just that that's just one example. Um, but uh, but look, we can't, there's no way there's no way to predict um, 
I, it's just our responsibility is uh, is to try to force the issue um, because nothing else has succeeded in doing it. And talk a little bit about some of the people that you specifically detail in this book and mm. what they're doing in terms of approaching this as a political movement and as a human rights and social justice struggle. Sure. Well, um, so I talk about a, a couple different um, kind of sets of, of activists. On the one hand, there are people who have engaged in really dramatic acts of um, nonviolent direct action to try to stop uh, things like the Keystone Pipeline or to try to, um, you know, shut down coal plants, uh, that, that sort of thing. Um, and on the other hand, there are, you know, frontline community leaders, community organizers and uh, environmental justice leaders who have been organizing in communities and poor communities and especially communities of color um, uh, who've been organizing for decades now uh, trying to you know bring attention to the fact that these communities are disproportionately uh, affected by uh, fossil fuel pollution um, by the siting of you know refineries and, and coal plants and, and, and all of the above and are now also um, most at risk uh, when it comes to the impacts of climate change, um, and so what, what we're what we're seeing, and what I what I try to show in the book is that is that these things are coming together, um, and so I go to I go to Texas, and uh, I, I found that um, the fight over the southern leg of the Keystone Pipeline uh, that runs through east of Texas from uh, Oklahoma down to the Texas Gulf Coast um, really in many ways, uh, crystallized it, clarified this, uh, uh, clarified all of this and sort of connected the dots for people in a way that maybe they hadn't been before. Um, because on the one hand, you have, um, you know, you have the, the Keystone Pipeline and, and going from, um, you know, the, the tar sands of uh, northern Alberta, uh, which themselves are, a, are an ecological and um, you know, human rights uh, catastrophe, uh, the way they've uh, affected uh, First Nations um, people up in, in, uh, up in Canada, um, all the way down through communities, you know, through the middle of the United States and then down right through uh, East Texas there where the southern leg was built, um, down to uh, the communities, again, mostly poor um, and uh, uh, Latino and African American communities in Texas and Port Arthur and, and in East Houston along the Houston Ship Channel, um, where 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 it's refined, um, and this is you know the largest petrochemical complex basically on on Earth there along the Texas Gulf Coast, um, and and how this issue connected the dots for people so that they could see that this was not only about climate change; it was also about the impact on human beings right now, um, and that that struggle uh, as I as I detail there in, um, in the book, you know, really. Um, elevated the the notion of climate justice and environmental justice um, in the climate in the climate movement, and 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 I think really galvanized people in a way um, that they hadn't been before. So. What is happening today? What is happening now that that is allowing this grassroots movement to continue to be galvanized? What what is keeping the movement active and vibrant today? Mm-hmm. Well, a number of things. Um, first of all, there are more of these um, all over the country. Uh, uh, you know, people are trying to stop infrastructure projects, um, 
you know, whether it's, you know, largely pipelines um, and other extraction projects. Although, you know, everyone understands that, uh, that you know, just stopping individual infrastructure projects um, is, isn't enough, right? <laughs> um, uh, but, they, but they do serve as, um, as, as great sort of rallying points um, for, for, to organize around and uh, to sort of galvanize people on the issue. Um, but the, also, I'd, I'd, I'd say perhaps the biggest uh, looming issue that I think, I think folks are, are gathering around right now is um, uh, this question of extraction of coal and, and other fossil fuels on um, public land, right? Uh, you know, you can point to places like uh, the Powder River Basin and the, the, the coal mines there in the, middle of the, in the middle of the country, Wyoming and around there, um, uh, which contains uh, enough carbon in the ground there uh, to easily cancel out, you know, the benefits of all of Barack Obama's uh, climate <laughs> policies thus far, right? Um, and so the idea, there's a campaign now around, you know, keeping it in the ground to try to prevent um, any future uh, leasing of, of extraction rights on public lands. Um, uh, so there's, there's that. And then there's, you know, uh, there's a lot of activism as well around, um, you know, the, 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 the other side of the equation, which is, you know, getting the kind of policies that we need to actually at, at the economic level, economy wide policies like pricing carbon, um, and uh, you know, investing in renewables um, that we need on the other side of the equation. So. To what degree do you think that it's making an impact in the more mainstream political process right now? Oh well, uh, that's um, th- that's an interesting question. I think that uh, I think we have seen it, uh, especially um, with uh, Hillary Clinton. Um, she has now, you know, first she she uh, came out against uh, Arctic drilling, um, which again is is that uh, all part of the um, this, this call to uh, you know stop extraction, uh, new new major um, mm-hmm. uh, drilling. Uh, so she came out against Arctic drilling, and then she came out against the Keystone Pipeline, which is something she had very carefully not taken a position on for years, even though as Secretary of State, um, uh, she uh, she had said that she would probably be quote inclined to approve it, uh, and that was at a time you know before the environmental review process had even been allowed to um, to take place. And then, but you know, she's has now come out against it and and framed it in cl- in terms of climate change. She said it doesn't align with what we need to do on climate change, um, and so. Um, uh, you know, she's uh, she, she's moving in the right direction, and it's it's hard to imagine that you know she would be in this primary campaign if it weren't for the kind of pressure that the climate movement has actually brought to bear on these issues. So that's a very tangible example, I think. But I would also say that you know, when three or four hundred thousand people come out on the streets of Manhattan, um, you know, uh, calling for serious climate action, uh, folks. Folks notice, and I, I think that the the profile of of climate change in this election campaign, um, the heightened profile of it, does owe something to uh, the kind of you know grassroots pressure that we're seeing now. 
And finally, talk about the nexus between the grassroots pressure and the movement that you're seeing and you've been talking about here in the U.S. as it relates to similar movements around the world. Oh, well, you know, um, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it is absolutely a global movement um, that, that, that should be made very clear. And we're going to see that in Paris. Um, but what we're going to see there is very much a, a global movement on the streets. Uh, and, you know, that, that needs to be said that it is now it's, it's about this same kind of political pressure being brought to bear um, in, in the countries now that are absolutely critical to, uh, to moving, moving us forward at the international level. Right. And I think it's fair to say that, that the, the politics around climate have shifted enough in the past, um, you know, certainly since Copenhagen, um, that now the, the political costs of failure, you know, of a, of a sort of a collapse of the Paris talks, if that were to happen, are now viewed as too high. And, um, and so we are going to see something come out of Paris. Um, it isn't going to be enough, uh, not even close, but, uh, but we're going to see something. And I think that, that is uh, a testament to um, the, the shift in the politics globally, even at the grassroots level. So, Overall, you seem optimistic about the cause at this point. <laughs> it's funny that I sound that way. Um, <laughs> I'm actually not that optimistic. Um, I mean, I think there are reasons um, to be hopeful about the political shift that's occurring, but I think we have to be absolutely clear-eyed about how far we are from really addressing this, you know, in, at, at the level that science says is necessary. Okay, so what I most hope will come out of Paris and will come out of this current election campaign that we're in here um, is a more honest conversation about what we're actually facing. Okay, when, I think that. Yeah. No, go ahead. Um, um, I think that. You know what I really want to hear uh, is is is, a, is an honest conversation about a you know what the science says um, about the scale and urgency of, of the crisis, which we're really not hearing from our mainstream you know political candidates, um, and then you know uh, what it would actually take to address it. Um, you know the fact that you know that this gap, this enormous gap, what's called the ambition gap, exists between what um, is scientifically, you know, physically necessary and what is what we're told is politically possible. And then and then about the human consequences, the real human consequences of failing to address it adequately and, and who who's going to suffer the most. Um, if we can start to get an honest conversation about those things, then then maybe we'll begin to build the, the truly necessary political will to to address this. Because it is an emergency situation. Um, humanity really is at stake here. Um, but, it, but it's hard to see how you build the political will to address it at that level if, if you're not even acknowledging, honestly, what the, what the real scale and the real stakes of, of, of the crisis are. So. Wayne Stevenson, his book is What We're Fighting For Now Is Each Other. Dispatches from the Front Lines of Climate Justice. Wen, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Well, thank you. It's been good. Thank you. We'll take a break.
I'll be right back. 